hello everybody. This is Pradeep Nap from the Breton Goods Podcast. I have a very, very special guest with me today. I have Michael Bishop, who works at Replication Markets. For anybody who doesn't know, a replication market is a market where various traders try to forecast the uh, probability of a certain scientific paper being replicated by other researchers in good faith experiments in the future. So Mike worked at DARPA's SCORE project, which did this. So hi, Mike. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you're on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, my first question to you is, could you describe yourself and your background and how did you end up coming uh, up to this fairly unique project? Sure. Well, I first got interested in forecasting when I was in graduate school at the University of Chicago in sociology. But I was looking around at what was going on in other fields, economics, um, education policy was a special interest of mine. And I discovered simultaneously Phil Tetlock's work on forecasting and also the early machine learning work. And I realized that social scientists hadn't been that interested in the problem of prediction. They hadn't really tried to put their knowledge to the test. Um, you know, if you're so smart, you know, what's going to happen if we do this? Uh, if we raise interest rates or um, send more people to school. And ultimately, good decision making is based on uh, forecasting. It's, it's not often formalized or, or made explicit as such, but to make a good decision, the idea is you need to know what will happen if you take different decisions so that you can choose the right one. Uh, so that I discovered Phil Tellock's work. I became a volunteer forecaster for the Good Judgment Project. And that project was very successful. And we learned a lot about uh, how to improve on uh, state-of-the-art forecasting methods for difficult problems. And certainly uh, that it is possible to beat a typical political pundit when it comes to accurately predicting the future of geopolitics. Uh, that does that certainly doesn't mean that we can predict very accurately. You know, this is not uh, particle physics where we have uh, accurate predictions out to 10 decimal places, but it, it is possible to do better than the status quo. And from there, so that was my interest in forecasting and, and, and prediction markets, which we also studied. Um, and from there, I worked in finance and tech for a little while and then uh, caught the forecasting bug again and joined replication markets, which is winding down as a research project now, although there's papers that are being written and we hope to be able to make more results public as time goes on, but the data collection is over. And yeah, it's, it's been a fantastic journey. And um, not not sure what's coming next, but excited. It's it's been a great ride. Um, could you describe to the listeners why this project was was required? Because when you talked about um, social scientists not particularly worrying about prediction versus uh, something else, that that really st struck a chord with me because I've also thought of that many times before. 
what's the uh, what is the crisis that that happened in many social sciences that 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 led to this being re- required yeah so science is a is a wonderful thing but it requires constant effort to improve itself test its assumptions and you know it, it relies on a community of people committed to doing that institutions that are designed to encourage the you know the best most rigorous sort of uh, research um, and in social science prediction is one thing that has been for the most part ignored and you know Phil Tutlock has sort of the biggest name in studying forecasting and prediction in in psychology and, and human judgment more generally generally um, in the I would say early 2010s or late 2000s there began to be a broader acknowledgement of some of the problems that were that exist in in social science uh, the so-called replication crisis as it became to be called was that many studies when they were repeated by independent researchers didn't get the same results now we wouldn't expect that or want to demand that every time a study was completed by an independent researcher it got exactly the same result but when you're only getting sort of roughly similar results half the time or perhaps less uh, that's indicative of a problem because it's hard for knowledge to accumulate in these fields if that if you can't successfully replicate work or, and um, in some sense the problem starts even earlier in that researchers often don't describe their what their research is carefully enough in enough detail that one could replicate the work at least not to sufficient precision data that they collect is often not shared nor the the code or the statistical procedures in enough detail the the exact experimental setup is often not described well enough. So these are problems that have been known about, you know, by insiders for many years, but they started to get more attention. Um, in I would say the early 2010s, you had some famous papers like Ioannidis uh, writing a paper provocatively titled why most published research findings are false. And that was focused on the medical sciences. And I remember reading that, I think that was 2005, and just being stunned, you know, saying, you know, in some ways not surprised, but in, in some ways, you know, and excited that there was, this meant there was a possibility for much improvement. But it's also obviously disappointing. And um, sometimes scientists like to pretend that things are cleaner and more reliable than they really are. So, Brian Nosek uh, performed some of the first large-scale systematic replication efforts in, in psychology and found that maybe half of studies didn't successfully replicate. That is, they, they, they didn't find roughly the same conclusion, um, achieving statistical significance. And so th- there, there's been a lot of thinking about why this problem is um and what can be done about it 
And so the so so one one of the you know I'll, I'll skip ahead a little bit replication markets. Um, our approach or our small contribution to this is to attempt to predict uh, for three thousand published research claims, one claim in each of three thousand papers, whether or not if an independent replication were undertaken, would they succeed? Would they get roughly the same result or not? And so for each of these 3,000, we were tasked with providing a method that, that, that predicts the likelihood that it would successfully replicate. Um, and so we developed a number of methods and they, some of them used um, prediction markets and other use other technologies, um, peer prediction using you know, survey elicitation. Um, and, you know, I think we're learning a lot and, you know, very, it's, this is, um, very happy to be part of DARPA score. It's a, a large, large project and, um, and yeah, we're, we're learning a lot and it's ongoing. So if I, if I understand this correctly, what happened was a lot of, a lot of, um, social science, not just psychology research projects were, weren't able to be replicated for all the reasons you mentioned. And one of the um, solutions, at least to incentivize such things, such um, replication efforts and better research methods was to have a market where people could bet on whether these um, studies could be replicated or not, right? That's right. So one of the reasons the replication rate has probably been low is that people don't do very many replications. And so they're, and then if, frankly, if you, if somebody, if you publish your research in a well-respected journal and then a future replication effort fails to validate your, your claim, honestly, that doesn't hurt you that much professionally. Um, but there are, there have not been enough replications taking place in a lot of fields. And psychology has started to change along these lines. Um, but the problem extends to other social science fields, which is what we covered in DARPA score, but it also extends to biological fields. There have been you know, reports of difficulties replicating cancer biology, medicine, um, and there's many fields that where we really don't know the extent of the problem because replication efforts haven't been attempted. And now replication, unfortunately, isn't the only problem or, or lack of replication in social science. So there are other issues that, that won't be solved just by focusing on replication. Um, but uh, it's an important one. It's a foundational one. And, you know, we like to remind that it's also important that just because a study doesn't replicate successfully doesn't mean that the original study was bad. It may be that the replication wasn't that great, or maybe they're both good studies, but what the, the difference in their findings reveals something about you know, the mechanism. Well, it just raises the question, why is it that they got different results? That's an opportunity to learn something. So. Um, 
you know, the extent of the, of the failures of replication and the, and the disappointment in the, in the fields has led to a lot of work understanding what leads to poor replication rates and ideas for how to fix it. So, and, and these, these are, you know, work together, obviously thinking about what, what led to the problems and, and how to fix them are related, but, but not the same sort of problem. So some of the conclusions that people have come to about why these problems have existed are fundamentally, a lot of it comes down to the incentives that researchers face. There's a lot of pressure to get research published, to have sort of snappy, clear findings that um, maybe even sensational findings that get media coverage that other researchers want to talk about. So these pull one into um, hoping to find dramatic results. And, the, and, and uh, along the way, um, you know, there are statistical mistakes. There are problems of what's called low statistical power, uh, where the, the design of the study, it, it just isn't designed to reliably detect true effects or to um, place tight bounds on them. So what happens with um, small sample sizes and low statistical power is you, you run experiments and you can get results all over the place and you, you may publish them all, but a lot of what you're publishing is just sort of noise. It's just, you don't realize it, but there's, your results are fairly random. So, um, so these are some of the, the sources of the replication crisis and, and larger systematic efforts to replicate research is part of the solution. Say, we're going to start doing more replications. We're going to care more about replications. We're going to, we, we want to reward researchers that are doing replications. Unfortunately, you know, they haven't been and, and, and still aren't sufficient rewards to individual researchers to performing these replications. But replications are expensive. They're difficult to do. And so one of the ideas of DARPA score was how can we assess the credibility of published research without, you know, before we've done a full independent replication. So DARPA scores ultimate goal is to build AI tools that can help predict the credibility of research, you know, before with even without humans in the loop, but towards that goal and is uh, trying to use human judgment to predict which results are more likely to hold up. And so DARPA score had a very ambitious goal of getting predictions on 3000 research claims. And they come from all sorts of fields from criminology to economics, sociology, political science, um, marketing, management, you know, leadership, international relations. And they selected these 3000 research claims from all these fields, top journals, 
journals where if you publish in there, it, it could really help an academic's career. And they tasked Replication Markets, our team, and also another team uh, called Replicats from the University of Melbourne, led by Fiona Fiddler, um, with coming up with the best forecast possible, trying to predict how likely each of these papers would replicate. Now, only 250, we hoped, of these papers would actually receive a formal replication attempt because of the expense of doing so. But that those 250, or ultimately it wasn't even, we didn't quite get 200 yet, but they, we hoped that they would validate that our predictions are decent. You know, we, we don't expect to be able to predict whether a result would replicate with perfect accuracy. There are a lot of random factors or, or factors that we don't observe, but to, to show that it's possible to do better than people have done in the past in identifying which research designs are more rigorous. We hope this would provide better incentives for future research, that it would help people understand how to evaluate research, and, and, and yes, that it would help DARPA with their goal of developing AI tools that can also assist non-experts. Right. Um, what was the structure of the, of, of the market like? How did you design it and what were the incentives for the um, participants to uh, predict it accurately? Sure. So the, we used both prediction markets and a survey-based approach, a peer prediction method, which is coming out of computer science research. Um, and there's prior research that compares um, survey-based methods or prediction polls and prediction markets. For example, I'd point the listener to um, my former colleague, uh, Pavel Atanasov. Um, the, the upshot is that both statistical methods that use survey data and experts and teams are and prediction markets are all ways that we can improve on status quo judgments. They they all are far more accurate than the typical ways that judgments get made. For example, peer the peer review process. Peer review sh shares some good elements as is, but I think it could be improved upon. So our our project. Um, we had other teams that are part of DARPA score, the Center for Open Science, uh, Psychology Research Accelerator, were involved with the actual replication efforts. We didn't know what was going to be replicated. So our job was to forecast the replication results. We recruited as many people as we could who would be interested in volunteering to forecast how likely each of these many research claims was to replicate successfully. And then we offered them a chance to look at the claims individually in isolation uh, with some information about the research claim, 
where it was published, you know, obviously a link to the whole article, basic statistical information, and form a judgment. And they entered that judgment in a survey. And they had one, we, we were sort of on a, a monthly schedule of attempting to do maybe 300 claims in a month. And they would have a week to look them over in a survey form. And then we would open a market, a, predict, a prediction market where people could bet on their confidence in all of these claims. So the, I, yeah, the idea of a prediction market is that you have some money or play money. Um, in our case, we used play money that was eventually translated into real money prizes. And, and participants are allowed to, encouraged to, to bet their confidence in claims. So every, every research claim starts out with a market belief in its level likelihood of replication. And if you think it's more likely than you to replicate than 50%, then you buy shares in it. If you think it's less likely, then you buy shares in no or or sell shares in yes. And and so um, your your bet changes the market price. It changes the the market belief in how likely a research claim is to replicate. And 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 thereby uh, you are encouraged to find the claims you think are are mispriced that have um, whose true likelihood of replication is is um, quite different than what the the market currently thinks, and to fix the market. Um, so yeah, so we we did um, around ten rounds, about one month per round. And it was in incredibly ambitious because there have been smaller projects like this, but they all took place over a much shorter time period with vastly fewer articles, maybe 30 articles, you know, 30 research claims at a time. And so, you know, they, they also had the benefit of 100% of the results that they were betting on would ultimately get a replication effort and get a result. Whereas we were trying to leverage a smaller number of actual replications to get predictions about a very large number of research claims. Okay. Um, there was a post by a blogger whose name I can't, fantastic anachronism, if I'm pronouncing it right, um, where, where he talked about trading on these on these markets from August 2019 onwards. Um, what do you think of that? Uh, do you think that the incentives uh, that the market, the, the mechanism was designed in a, in a, in a way to incentivize um, accurate prediction of whether, of whether the papers would replicate or not? Yes, we are eternally grateful for the efforts of our forecasters who did in some cases win substantial prizes. Um, uh, the Alvaro de Menard, I believe is a pseudonym, but um, he, or, or maybe it's his real name, I'm not sure, but he, he won uh, $10,000 for, 
from our project. We, we gave out a total of uh, over $150,000 in prizes. Um, I think that, and, but, but it's a small price to pay really for the, the quality of the information and analysis that we're, we're getting from, from our volunteers. Um, you know, I think that our project was a big step in the right direction and we are, you know, made, made a lot of progress, but is far from perfect. Um, there are certainly limitations that prevented it from being, um, even more successful. It, it, it's, a the, the, the job that we were asking our participants to do was, was difficult. You know, they had to look at, at, at statistical information and, and make these bets. It's not, it's not a hobby that most people are about to undertake or have the, have the background and expertise to, to get involved in. Um, I, you know, I, I think that in, in many cases there, um, in, in academia, research gets published and there may be some sort of, you know, healthy gossip about, you know, how reliable people think the methods are, but often there's no systematic uh, or standardized or open, you know, transparent way for outsiders to know what the insiders know about the reliability of the research. So I think that prediction markets and other, you know, survey or statistical aggregation methods are, are useful ways to elicit the knowledge that resides in, in expert people's heads. Um, I can't discuss the details of our, of our results at this time, but I can say that, you know, past research has suggested we can identify 70% or, or more of the time we could predict whether research would successfully replicate. And that's a far cry from 100%, but it's it's a lot better than than 50%. Um, so I, I think we're making real progress, but there there are limitations. Our our best participants, um, who contributed a lot, they they were stretched very thin. They were only able to spend a very little amount of time thinking about and making a prediction about each research paper in if we had much thicker markets with much more activity you'd expect a lot more specialization and people really doing deep reads of the of, of the papers that they want to bet on perhaps even uh, you know rerunning statistical analyses themselves um, double checking a lot of things but you know, our participants didn't have the the time or bandwidth to do that, except for maybe if they had only a small number of papers that they were interested in in studying the results of. I was fairly surprised by that, uh, by what you said there, because from my understanding of talking with people who are, who look at the application and stuff, they say that typically for there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in these where you, you you can basically filter by by p-value or sample size or power or or some of the easily available variable and then you can just say um you know uh 
if it doesn't meet these criteria, there's a very, very high chance it won't um, replicate. But your model suggests the opposite, that you know it takes a fairly large amount of detail. Um, what am I missing here? I think the we're both right. Um, I, I, you're right. There is a lot of low hanging fruit. There are, as it turns out, um, merely looking at what the P value that the research claim had is quite predictive of, of, um, how likely it is to replicate. And, um, I suppose it's not totally clear how much more accurate one could get with say spending an hour or two you know reading an article more carefully um to be honest it's probably only it's a relatively small improvement over looking at the sort of surface level statistical information so so there there is low-hanging fruit um but sometimes we really want to go that extra mile and, and do that you know extra work to to identify the improve our predictions of replicability and we also need to do that deeper level of analysis because replication isn't the only thing that we're concerned about so there are many other ways for research to you know fail to be to be biased so there are issues where the the measurement is very poor and so you're not really measuring what you think you're measuring or people's interpretation of the article the takeaway doesn't really follow from the core statistical claim so the core statistical claim may be very solid it may replicate but the interpretation that everyone gives to it about um you know, we found this uh, effect of this um, education program on high school students, and then in you know in in Chile, and we assume that therefore it is this is going to be the most effective approach for undergraduates in Singapore, um, and you know it just may not follow. So there is, you know, people have um, sort of aesthetic or political biases um, that need to be checked. There are, are, you know, people working on problems that are important versus unimportant problems. And, and all, all these things require sort of a deeper study of the, of the research to co reach conclusions about. But for the issue of replication specifically, yeah, you can go a pretty long ways with some uh, some key factors to consider. Uh, the p-value there, you know, which is related to statistical power, um, looking for things like interaction effects, which tend to be harder to estimate. Uh, knowing was was the hypothesis really um, originated before the research was done or as in happens in some cases a researcher may present a result as being something that they hypothesized would happen but 
they may have actually just done looked at the data and when they find a result that they like then they claim that they predicted that that's the result they were going to see all along it's called harking um hypothesizing yeah, after uh the results are known and yeah or or, or p-hacking so there's these there's these um there, there, there are many issues that that are some of them affect the replication, but because there are other issues, I think that ultimately we want a more robust, um, you know, post-publication peer review, a sort of ongoing attempts to improve science. So I, I think that that uh, some simple heuristics help having prediction markets or other institutions that can aggregate the sort of wisdom of the crowd regarding particular research claims is is very helpful um but i think that we could aim higher if we had better incentives uh that um that lasted beyond the the length of of darpa score um and both to target improving replication but also these other aspects of science that need improving I have two parts of this question for you, Jim. The first is that um, wouldn't this mean that it's that that because they're simple heuristics, um, there wouldn't be much um, um, outsized return in, it in 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 financial terms. There wouldn't be much alpha in uh, trading in replication markets. And the second thing is, how do you think? Both the uh, like actually the second part of the first question is: Were there any outsized Warren Buffett or Ken Griffin like traders who made a lot of money? And the second question is: If this was a norm in science, where you had to submit your paper and somebody was paid to replicate it, how do you think the uh, trading patterns and 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 structures would change in in that case where you, where there was a permanent replication market? Yeah, to answer your last question first, yeah, I think that that is what those of us in this field this um, would love to see. Um, is there are you know a lot of startup costs associated with you know running a prediction mar market or another institution for evaluating research systematically, and this is a proof of concept that we can make a lot of progress. But we would be more effective if it was just existing and funded on an ongoing basis. And we could continue um, continue this research. It we we in fact we expect that the research, the the underlying research practices are going to change over time. And so the heuristics that have been very successful at predicting the re research replicability in the past won't necessarily continue. Uh, if people start paying enough attention to them, they'll fix those problems, but that will just um, increase the pressure to find other ways where research gets assorted. And um, so in some sense, like it, it, it's gonna, a game of whack-a-mole. We need to continually um, evolve and, and work on new methods to improve research to keep up with the uh 
innovation in um, in unfortunately bad research that that is going to continue. Back to the first question: Were there any leaders who got oh. outsized with the turns? Yes. So the you you refer to an excellent blog post by one of our top traders, Alvaro de Menard, who also did very well in the, the survey portions, which were also financially incentivized. And, and he won $10,000. There's there's others who, who won quite a bit of money as well. Um, some names, some sort of pseudonyms off the top of my head were CPM, um, there was a Bradley something. Um, there, there were a, a relatively small number that won. You know, I think we had a couple dozen that won more than a thousand dollars. But there were, you know, and and we had hundreds of people that participated to some extent. But we we benefited greatly from some of these super traders that that really put in the extra effort to systematize their their process for um, improving these markets as much as they could, coming up with the best forecast they could. Um, so we, we benefited a lot from them. And uh, yes, the, the more and better participants we get, the harder it will become to, to make money. They need to be, I mean, in effect, the, the, they need to be subsidized, right? They need the... the um, if, if we want more effort to go into carefully judging research, we have to provide the incentives. So um, if you provide a greater subsidy to doing this sort of work, then you can get more analysis, more evaluation. And I think it's well worth it. If you consider the total amount of money that is spent funding research in the first place, this is, you know, this was a multi-million dollar project, but it's a tiny rounding error on the amount of you know, professor salaries and, and research budgets through all these fields over the course of decades. So, you know, we, we have, I think, a small, relatively small investment in um, improving these methods and reviewing research can have a really big payoff. One part of it, two of things you said don't, don't square with each other. You first said that really relatively simple um, things like predicting based on p-value, sample size, and power give you uh, really, really good, um, um, uh, like, they, like they sort well. The second part is that some people made a lot of money, and if you look at what they wrote, they basically use these simple sorting things with, with, with a little bit of human judgment. So obviously, um, across multiple market, across multiple iterations of this, this can't exist. Um, so, are you? Do you think that this is just for this one market that that you had a lot of really good traders, or or and and or do you think that um, some people? Uh, can consistently forecast better than, than others in these markets, uh, given you also worked with Philip Teclock on uh, super forecasting. Yeah, so there's, I agree there's a tension there, um, but not a contradiction. So there, there are definitely people have differing abilities. Definitely there are heuristics that can be learned to improve. 
um and 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 they 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 yeah they made money by doing better than others but in you know part of it also in in the markets was uh you you had to be right before others so sometimes there were fairly obvious things that could be fixed with the using these heuristics so the reward went to those who sort of fixed the problem improved their forecasts sooner than than others and um so but the you know the ultimate reward that that can get earned is um you know for us we had a fixed budget but you can you can scale it up as much as you want to get the amount of and 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 i think that our markets were you know far less liquid and 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 much less energy was going into trying to improve them than goes into the financial markets um and the financial markets i think are you know relatively efficient they they most of the time when an individual thinks they know better than the market they're wrong um but clearly there are ways to there there are individuals or organizations who find that they can you know translate there have to be people that improve the market that that improve the price and they there are people that can profitably invest their time and and knowledge and and technology in making the market just a a little bit more accurate and sometimes that's a something like a zero sum game where the, where you know maybe all we're getting is a little bit faster market and it's not really improving capital allocation that much but you know the goal is is a system that is focused less on on speed uh, but more on getting in a reasonable amount of time getting to roughly the correct evaluation and it certainly won't be perfect but it it's um i think that it's easy to um, not realize, you know, psychologists talk about something called scope and sensitivity. You know, it, it's really, it's, it's possible to not realize the, that um, things could be much, much better than they are. They could also be much, much worse than they are. So, um, and recognizing both those things are true simultaneously. Uh, allows us to not take progress for granted and and to be proud of what we have accomplished and and to worry about um ruining the the things that have worked in the past but at the same time realize that this you know the status quo is not the limit we we can do much better i really really like the optimistic note there so my last question to you is where should ambitious people go today? Both like not necessarily don't constrain yourself to location or field, but in general, if you were ambitious and you and you want to change the world, uh, where is where is the alpha left? I, you know, I, I think it's fairly. My answer would have to be fairly cliched in that you know learn basic skills that are widely applicable um i mean it could be you know for for me and for many people it's uh you know 
quantitative research, um, data analysis, but it could also be video editing or um, or, or production or, or marketing. Um, learn the skills that can that have a fairly broad applicability, especially while you're young. Yeah, the, the ability to speak and write is very valuable. Um, and then try to find problem areas that that uh, have a great potential for improvement. So a lot of people, I don't know a lot about biotech, but I'm very impressed by mRNA vaccines and, and, and many other achievements um, that we're seeing. You know, machine learning, data science is a fast moving field, has a lot of potential. Um, and 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 look for things that be ultimately be willing to take a risk, uh, a bet on something that is um, not just interesting and in, and in where where there other people are improving things, but try to find somewhere that is neglected by others, something that not enough other people are already working on, and give it a shot. And that that I think. It, you may end up having a really big impact. And if you don't, you'll at least probably learn something and you have plenty of time to take another shot. Uh, a fairly good answer among the best ones I've, I've received because uh, there's this sort of meta signaling people do when they, when they answer this. So uh, th uh, thanks for the uh, answer. Uh, thanks for coming. I think I've, I've, I've learned a lot, even though I, Probably knew. Uh, I even though I thought I knew a lot about the application markets, I've I've, I've learned a lot talking to you. Uh, I'd like to thank a few people first, Nathan Young for connecting me and you, and uh, Visa and Dinesh for the new mic because uh, it's great for that. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Um. Before I leave, like, allow me to thank um, the many many you know researchers that I worked with on this project. I had uh, principal investigators, uh, Charles Twardy, Thomas Massey, Yiling Chen, um, other colleagues, Michael Gordon, Domenico, Luisa, Brandon. Um, and if you'd like to hear more from me about this or other topics, please reach out. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at that Mike Bishop because there are other even more... <laughs> much more impressive Mike Bishops out there, honestly. Um, that, and, um, or you could find me on, you know, LinkedIn or, or elsewhere. So yeah, Google me that Mike Bishop on Twitter and uh, look forward to hearing from some of your listeners.